Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Anna M. Soto. She's a professor of immunology at Tufts University. She's also in the Molecular and Developmental Biology Department. Uh, she has myriad interests. We're going to focus in on one of them today of her choosing. So, uh, Anna, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, tell me a bit about uh, your background and uh, how you, re- you reached the point where you're working on myriad things and what those things are. Well, by training, I'm a physician, but I was always interested in science. So I started working in laboratories during my education. And by the time I ended medical school and after After my internship, I decided to work full-time in basic questions in biology, and uh, I have been doing that since. Okay, and then I know that you've worked on cancer, and you're also working on, uh, I guess, evolutionary biology. So, you know, let me know, pick a topic that you'd like to discuss, and we'll start to go deep on it. It's your choice. Okay, fine. I think that it would be uh, good to mention that I started working on endocrinology. I'm an endocrinologist, and I wanted to know how estrogens, the female hormone, control the proliferation of cells like say in the breast, the uterus, etc. I joined Carlos Sonnenschein Lab many years ago because he was the first person to develop a cell line in which we could study this. And um, we had a, a paradox at that point. What uh, the, we were observing in animals, that is that you needed an estrogen in order for the cells in the mammary gland to proliferate was not happening in cell culture. The cells proliferated with or without hormone. And that, of course, piqued our curiosity, and we started trying to figure out why it was. And to make a very long story short, we realized that uh, cells don't need to be stimulated, that cells in, in animals like us uh, don't need to be stimulated to proliferate, that um, 
they share the same way of living in a way that bacteria or unicellular organisms that is provided that you put nutrients in, they will proliferate. But with the advent of multicellularity, that had to be that that very basic thing that is shared, uh, shared by all cells had to be uh, controlled in a way so that in the organism, some cells will proliferate and some cells will not so that we don't become blobs. And uh, that is what the organism does by inhibiting cells that otherwise will be proliferating. So that was the so, first thing that we did. So have you been able to make a model of what factors, you know, either accelerate or slow down proliferation and how a population of cells signals to each other to say, you grow, you don't grow, you slow down, you go faster? Well, what we did was to figure out first that they didn't need to be stimulated, at least when they are in culture. So what we did is try to reconcile that with what was going on in the animal. And what we did was to expose those cells to uh, serum and plasma. And what we found is that uh, something in serum inhibited their proliferation. And then when you added the female hormone estrogen, cells proliferated again. So what we found was that cells will proliferate as long as they have nutrients. Then the organism will inhibit them through a plasma-borne inhibitor. And then if estrogens were present, there will be an inhibition of an inhibitor and cells will proliferate again. And that we show, and some other people reproduce the experiments, and uh, we try to extend that to convert this or to understand this as a big principle in biology. That is, that cells in bacteria, in unicellular organisms, and in multicellular organisms, all of them share this principle that would be like the inertia principle in classic physics, that is a fundamental principle whereby they will proliferate if they have nutrients. And in order to control them, you need to inhibit them. And uh, so we postulate this principle. And from there, we started working on theoretical biology. Well, before we move on, have you modeled the population of cancer cells versus, you know, normal cells and look at the you know, the dynamics of their growth and how it's different? No, they are not different at all when you have them in culture, actually. Uh, they proliferate exactly the same way. The difference is uh, what's going on in the animal when a cancer is formed. And so if you consider that every cell will proliferate unless it's inhibited by the tissue architecture, then there is where you have the difference between cells in a normal tissue and cells in a cancerous tissue. The ones in the normal tissue are inhibited by the organization of that tissue. And so that is something acquired during development. An embryo, the first stage of an embryo is a zygote, a single cell. That single cell proliferates very fast. But as cells start to form tissues and organs, they slow down. And again, that is differential. Some cells grow more, some cells proliferate less. And that is controlled, among other things, by the organization of that tissue. So when the tissue is well organized, like in embryogenesis, it will do, it will proliferate orderly. But if you disturb it with something that alters this communication among cells of different tissues, uh, then cells will regain their ability to proliferate. They will also regain their ability to move. 
And so therefore they will proliferate like a tumor and they will be able to move, that is to invade, that is another property of cancer and move far away, that is to make metastasis. But, uh, quite, so, but when a cancer first begins or it's really tiny, I mean, the tissue architecture, I would think is normal. Or do you think there's something that goes on that causes the tissue architecture to be altered and that's what starts cancer? Well, that is what you see if you inject an animal. I, our model is the mammary gland. You inject an animal with a carcinogen. The first thing that you observe about 15 days later is that you have intraductal hyperplasia. So that is a disturbance of tissue architecture. And that that can progress to cancer. It could stop there. It could reabsorb. But that is the first thing that we see is an alteration of tissue architecture. And as a matter of fact, that is the way that cancer is diagnosed. Cancer is diagnosed by a pathologist using a microscope and telling people that this tissue is organized differently. So do you think that um, cancers start out as like neoplasms and then when the architecture is just right or just wrong, that's what transitions it into cancer? Well, cancers are neoplasms. So neoplasm is new tissue formation. And what is different is that if you look at a very early cancer, and I have to interrupt myself very about once more than one century ago, an embryologist uh, mentioned Boveri, that is the father of the somatic mutation theory of cancer. He mentioned that uh, whereas an embryo, you can know what's going on because from the time of fertilization, you know, well, this is one hour later, two hours later. In other words, you see the moment of fertilization and then you can follow it up until the animal is born. But in cancer, you never see the cancer in the moment in which it's born. So what we see if we use an uh, experimental model is that few days after you inject this carcinogen, if you are working with rats, for example, or mice, you observe these lesions that small deviations from the normal architecture. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And so it seems that the relationship among those cells get altered. And it's like a dialogue, you know, when you you are talking with someone and then you, people start not understanding each other. They start talking louder, they get nervous, etc. So the dialogue can degenerate. So here, I mean, this is a metaphor to say that as this progress, the communication between these different cell types becomes more abnormal. And then with time, cancer can ensue. But there are cases in which stops there or it uh, disappears by normalization. And that is what interests us the most. 
well, why would architecture cause cancer to progress or why would it cause it in the first place? What is it about the architecture changes? Is it, does it divert cell to cell signaling in a, you know, to wrong pathways or concentrate well, uh, metabolites in a certain way? What, what do you think does it? Well, uh, if you look, you mean there are many elements that intervene. I mean, at the beginning, you see like a couple of cell types, say, or two elements, two structures that get together and start forming an organ. And you see that the, if you put either one of the two structures in vitro in a dish, you do not get much farther. You don't get to form the even the cell types that would form later on. So what is happening there is that you have um, several things going on. Cell-cell contact, and then you can have biochemical factors and their receptors. That is one thing. I mean, one cell secretes something and the other responds to that and vice versa. So that is biochemical communication. But also, like, some cells proliferate faster and... uh, push the others, so that is mechanical forces. There is bioelectricity, so there is many different factors that intervene, and also the formation of extracellular matrix that also determines how this tissue develop. And so what we think is that when you are alter that, instead of having a normal organ, you have a cancer. Or if you alter that later on in life, what you affect is, for example, tissue remodeling. That is, as a tissue, adult tissue will go through phases of cell death and cell proliferation, etc. So there is a remodeling of that tissue, like, for example, in bone and in organs like the mammary gland. And so when this remodeling is affected by a carcinogen, then you have alterations of all these components, physical forces that are mechanical, electrical, and also biochemical changes of cell-cell communication. What do you think some of the factors are? Like, what's what's the disruption characterized by? You know, there's a physical change, there's a physical structural change, but why do you think that leads to, you know, all these problems? Well, because those things are inhibiting cell proliferation and are keeping the cells doing their own function. And uh, if you alter that, since cells in the presence of nutrients proliferate, they start proliferating, they start moving, they start behaving differently, and they are not checked by the tissue itself. And so that you can, you can show that if you take a tumor and you dissociate those cells and you inject them in the norm, in, in the organ of origin, like, for example, if you take a cancer from the liver, you inject it in the liver, in the normal liver, or a cancer of the mammary gland, and you inject those cells into the mammary gland, provided that you inject a small number of cells, you see those cells that get normalized, and they form part of the normal architecture of the organ, and they produce the products of that organ. They function like that organ. So... If you can reverse cancer like this, so again, you see it's a problem of tissue architecture. Well, do you think you'd learn anything if you were able to fluorescently tag, you know, a a minute cancer and then observe it grow and see its morphology change over time? Would that hint at you, uh, you know, what underlying mechanisms are allowing it to spread? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, people have done that. I mean, you take this cancer cells that I talk about and you tag them or you follow, like you put cells that are from a male into a female recipient so you can follow the chromosome. So 
tags that you put, tags that uh, were already acquired for some reason, etc. And you follow those cells that came from a cancer and you inject them into normal tissue. And all you see is that they are incorporated in the tissue and you can recognize them for the because they are tagged, but they are doing exactly what the normal cells are doing. And so they are forming junctions with the cells, the normal cells, like normal cells do, you know, form with each other. So there is not much more than you can learn with that. You have to develop new methodology to do that. And because people are not looking at this problem from this perspective, or I would say a minority of researchers are doing that, what you have is most people are looking at cancer like if it was a cell-based problem instead of a communication problem among cells of different different types, then you don't have the tools to do that because what you would need to do there is to measure electrical communication and biophysical communication in micro scale if you're looking at structure like if you think about like skin tabs or cysts or benign tumors or implants in the body you know these are all like structural changes but yet i don't think they lead to cancer all the time so what well, you know what can you learn from considering those systems versus uh you know cancer well it depends what system i mean strenuous bodies create cancer and even if you put in some animal models you put a membrane that is a flat structure okay that we used to filter i mean it was that many years ago so you put one of those membranes under the skin and you get a sarcoma i mean the mouse gets sarcoma now if you grind this membrane and make a dust powder and you inject that you don't get a tumor so is the fact that this is a physical structure that is doing that And those things need to be investigated further. If you look at it from the story that all it counts is just what is inside the cell, you won't find it. That is one way to get cancer, what I just told you. Asbestos, for example, asbestos has to be in the fibrillar stage in order to trigger cancer. If it's amorphous, it doesn't. Do you think that, um, you know, so the right geometry acts, what, as a nucleation site as well for further growth? Or you know, have, So have you studied like the geometry of, of tumors to see which shapes are more conducive to cancer or neoplasms in general? No, I am studying normal cells in order to get there. I mean, we are looking at how you form normal structures with normal cells in a three-dimensional model in tissue culture. And then you see what are the determinants that make normal structures like ducts in the mammary gland or acini in the mammary gland or abnormal structures. And some other biophysicists have shown that if you make a very rigid matrix, uh, cells organize in a way that look more like a tumor than a normal tissue. Now, of course, you have to go further with that, and that is very difficult to pass from there to the animal. But there are experiments that have done, uh, been done like this that show clearly that the rigidity of the milieu affects shape, that cell-to-cell interaction does that, that even in my case, we are studying the matrix, matrix organization, and if fibers organize in a given way, that's organized parallel to the, the, the fibers. If you coat those fibers, rounded structures appear etc. So you have to study the basic components of what you see in cancer that is a disarray of these normal structures. Only then, when you more or less understand how a normal one appears, 
normal structure, then you can play with elements to make out of this normal structure abnormal ones. You know, like all different kinds of cells make all different kinds of structures in the body. And that's, you know, all part of normal growth. So I just wonder what it is about these particular structures that are carcinogenic or deleterious. Because again, the, how many different structures are there in the human body and millions of different ones? I don't know how many different tissue types of structures, but tons of them. So why are all those okay, but not these? A tissue of origin, mostly like a caricature of the tissue of origin. So what you see is an alteration of the structure of the tissue, okay? And so you start somewhere. So cancer of the liver looks like a, a not so beautiful cancer tissue, but you liver tissue, but you recognize it to be liver. There are cancers, I mean, there are exceptions, but it's a minority in which what you see is not reminiscent of the tissue of origin and you call them anaplastic and then you have to do further investigation or to know what is the tissue of origin. But normally you can say this is a liver cancer, this is a mammary gland cancer, this is a prostate cancer and so on. So, and what they have is an altered structure of the tissue. Now, I can take you to another example that is easier to study. That is the, a tumor in Drosophila that is created by um, an alteration on a gene in the germline that is called the pathological gene, is uh, called lethal giant larva 2. And uh, in those animals, at the time that the fly, the adult fly is forming, a tumor of the brain appears that will kill the host. Now, people isolated this gene and curiously, it's not expressed in the brain tissue. It's expressed in the embryo and in many other tissues. So what they did is to see the gene needs to be expressed. I mean, the normal allele, not the mutated one, the normal allele in order not to form a cancer. And they found that that is during the first hour after fertilization. At the moment where there is no brain, there is nothing but a syncytium. So therefore, what happens is a very complex, complex chain of events. I mean, cancer is not something that you obtain by shaking normal cells. It's a developmental process or it's a regeneration process and it's very complex. It's not just a thing where you will find this silver bullet or just one thing that is producing the cancer. It's an alteration of development and that implies many components. Has anyone looked at, let's say, uh, you know, a population of a thousand different tumors and looked at their structure and tried to infer like some commonalities from them? Is there any commonality or are they just like amorphous blobs? No, that is what I'm telling you. They look like the tissue of origin. And in some cases, actually pathologists say that there are tumors that show a little deviation from the structure of the tissue of origin. Okay. There are others that are more deviated and so forth. So there is a point where they look like a blob, as you say, but that is not the majority of the cancers. Okay. Yeah. I just, what I've heard from everyone I've spoken to about cancer is just, they, they just pass it off. as like, oh, they're amorphous blobs. They're heterogeneous and there's no like real structure to be had. But I just wonder what, you know, is there well, one? That, that depends on whether you have seen cancers or you are studying cancers and get a piece of tissue and do molecular biology with it. But if you are a pathologist, which I am not, you can distinguish these things. I mean, not, not all cancers are just a blob. You see a structure that is abnormal, but reminiscent 
of the tissue of origin. I wonder if you look at not the structure of the tumor, but the negative space, you know, the space that it occupies and how it distorts the existing tissue. And maybe you can figure out from there by the distortion from the object, but not the object itself, the displacement, you know, what the uh, the commonalities are. What is that okay, you no have problem. in mind? Because I see, first of all, there is not, depending on the type of tumor, there is a separation that you can, pers- you can see. And uh, in some other cases, there is not such a thing because they are invasive. So okay, well, very good. I mean, are there any hypotheses that you're working on that seem to, you know, be showing promise, you know, in your research? Yes, sure. I mean, if you consider that uh, cancer is a problem akin to development, embryonal development gone awry, you can try to study what is going on in development, as many people are doing, you know, in different organs, and then try to concentrate in what those differences are when you try to get into cancer, but you have to describe that and people haven't been doing it from that perspective. Although some people like Mina Vissel, for example, have done some of it and in culture and you notice, and there are, as I said, the same things I said before, that cell-to-cell interaction is very important and you can look at some of the elements, but yet it's very complex, and even other people that are doing this have that problem of complexity. There are many elements there that you have to check. And so one of the things we do in order to understand that is to do the opposite, that is to try to normalize cells that once belong to a cancer and see what is required for that. And so you learn from that. Actually, there is a group that has done something quite interesting that is to take cells from melanomas that will kill the patients and inject them in embryos of zebrafish. And if you inject them when uh, the neural crest is being formed and cells from the neural crest migrate at a given part from where they start to the whole body, if you do that at that moment, the, uh, the melanoma cells migrate with the neural crest cells and form normal structures. But if you inject the embryo with melanoma cells after that migration took place, they form a tumor. So this is telling you something about things that happen at the moment of migration of the neural crest cells. That is where you have to look at the problem. And there are many experiments like this. They are very complex, but they are giving shedding light about how is that cells that were once the ones belong to a cancer can be normalized. And there is a secret. Has there been any experimentation that has normalized a cancer or tumor and, you know, reduced it or eliminated it by changing structure somehow? Oh, yeah, sure. That nature has done it. A big number of uh, children with uh, neuroblastomas uh, cure spontaneously. And what happens is that these cells that are a neuroblastoma because the nerve ganglion has an altered structure and the neuroblasts are proliferating, all of a sudden gets to maturation and then it forms just... And so you find now normal tissue that once was a problem is how does the organism do that? Are there any hints from uh, observations so far on how organisms do that? No. Uh, I mean, is there a way to, to do it with uh, somehow with a mouse model or, I mean, a simple organism that, like, what's the simplest organism known that uh, that gets cancer? Is there anything simpler than, you know, like, I guess single cell, single cell organisms don't by definition, but are there any uh, somewhat simpler life forms that, that do that you could study or someone could study? Well, people have tried all kinds of things. I mean, the fact that you don't know about uh, 
the positive results that you are looking for when, you know, I would say whole army of scientists are trying to study it is because it's very difficult. People have studied that in fishes in, uh, and in other animals. I mean, some of them are not as practical as a mouse or a rat because of some other technicalities, but you can study cancer in different models. And it's always complex because of the first thing I said, you don't see it in at the moment in which it's born. You cannot follow it from the very beginning. In order to study it, you have to kill it. So when you study embryos, say a chicken embryo, of course that if you observe the say the, the at ten hours, you are killing that chicken. But because you know when fertilization occurs, you can do a bunch of them at ten hours, a bunch of them at twelve, and so forth and so long. So you have an idea about what is the progression. Okay, when you do cancer, you do not know when it starts. You can inject carcinogen. And you know that the target will be the mammary gland. It's a big tissue, even in a small animal, to find out where it starts. And then you cannot do it in this systematic way because it's not like uh, timing embryology. I don't know if it's clear to you, but if you don't know how to, when it starts, you don't know how to look at it at the very beginning. And that poses a problem that existed 100 years ago and it exists today. Is there any way of backtracking when you're looking at a tumor and, you know, again, reconstituting how it formed, you know, going back through the clonal lineages and, and uh, you know, going backwards in time to its inception? Well, first of all, clonal lineages is kind of uh, not so clear. I mean, people used to think that they are monoclonal. They are not monoclonal. And uh, it's not possible to study that back. I mean, you, you have what you have. I mean, what happened before, if you didn't register it, you don't know. So it's huh. difficult. Well, what do you mean by uh, clonal lineages and not what they appear? Well, people that believe in the somatic mutation theory of cancer start by saying that cancer originates in a single cell. And so it's a clone. And uh, so some other people don't think that way. That think that uh, what happens is that it originates in multiple places in a tissue. And I am of that persuasion. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense. So, so you think it starts in multiple places, and then at what point does it change the structure of the tissue where it allows it to, you know, pro- proliferate in such a way that it turns into cancer? Or do you think it starts out immediately as a cancer? And I guess it, you know, what's the definition of cancer if you look at this model? Well, you, we do not know. I mean, what I'm saying is that if you inject animals with a carcinogen, rats with nitrosomethylurea, you see intraductal hyperplasias by day 15. You don't have some of them, but you don't see them. You, you cannot see this instant in which you observe the first change in structure. You don't see it because you just have no way to do it. You see, the moment you harvest that mammary gland, you kill it. So therefore, if it's very difficult to find it, you don't find it. You find it when you recognize something that is quite different. And that happens at about two weeks after you inject. And you cannot go back. People try to do it. I won't say legions of people, but, you know, several people try. Well, if you inject a mouse in a certain area, has anyone tried to, like, euthanize the mice a few days later, and then a week later, and then two weeks later, you know, different ones, obviously, and try to catch the tumor at, like, the earliest of the early stages? People have injected the animals, 
and done exactly what you say, but it's not in a specific place because that is not how you generate this tumor. You inject the carcinogen and it gets everywhere and it's a technicality, but that is the way it is. And so then you have a mammary gland from which you have, I, I don't know how many sections you have to do in order to see the whole thing. Yeah, I thought it reliably, so it doesn't reliably create a cancer in the same spot each time. Is there any way to do that? No. Okay. I just didn't know if you can get close or, or not. No, it's not like that. the injection site. No, it's not like that. Not in the what? model of the mammary gland and not in other models. If that was the case, probably some people would have arrived at something else. But even with asbestos, what people have is... Uh, and also, if you do this, not every cell becomes a cancer. I mean, this is parts of the tissue will develop into these uh, preneoplastic lesions. And uh, so you have to look at the whole mammary gland in order to see these lesions. But it's not the whole mammary gland that becomes a cancer. And of those lesions, then some may progress to be a cancer. So it's really complex. But most of the ducts in that mammary gland will not have signs of malignant development. I, I thought that, um, you know, certain cancers, I guess this is more with viruses. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I thought you might be able to reliably cause a cancer in a certain organ or tissue, but unfortunately, I guess you can't. So Yes, I can. I can do that in an organ like everyone else, but that organ has, like say, a mammary gland has a lot of ducts, okay? I will find at a given point in some particular ducts, a preneoplastic lesion. So I do find them, but it's not Every duct of the mammary gland is not every small lobal structure of the liver that has that, okay? If you had like a population of, I don't know, 20 mice and you injected them all and then, you know, you looked at, uh, you know, their mammary glands, you know, euthanized them at different times and looked at the mammary glands. I mean, is it just, there's just way too much to look at in order to find what we're looking for or like what would be the constraint on doing something like this? Oh, we find the tumors and we find the preneoplastic lesions, but before we find the Pineoplastic lesions, we find normal structures. Okay. I just wonder, like I said, if, if someone's, uh, you know, injected mice with this compound and then like, you know, every day euthanized one or more of them and looked and tried yes. to catch it, like I said. In yes. Many authors did and they don't observe anything until about two weeks after you inject the animal. Yeah, it's weird. So all of a sudden, two weeks, boom. It appears and it's uh, it's pretty well developed, right? No, it's a preneoplastic lesion. Oh, so what are the characteristics of these lesions that, uh, what does it tell you to look at these lesions? They look different from the normal. Okay. Can, like can you infer like cast... future tumor structure from them or what can you infer no. from the lesions? You don't infer anything, that, but that statistically a bunch of them may become cancerous. Not all. Maybe one in 10, I don't know. That depends I wanna, on the model. I guess I, guess I want to pin down cancer, but it won't let me, and it won't let you, and it won't let anybody so far. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like until it's a fait accompli, you, you cannot detect it. That is the story. And that is what was said 100 years ago. You don't see it in the, stat in, in the moment it's born. Okay. So that is why it's so important to do studies in which you normalize cancer, because at least you start with cells that you took from a cancer, and then you can see in different ways, how you can normalize them. And I told you one experiment uh, that uh, someone else did, not, uh, not, not us, that uh, was about, uh, about melanomas. And there are people that have done it in livers and people that have done it in the mammary gland. 
like us and some other groups with different cell types of the mammary gland, etc. So there are many different components that you can use to show that normal tissues can induce cells that belong to a cancer before to beha- behave normally. Like, for example, in the mammary gland, synthesize milk. And that is a way to go. And some people are working on that, but takes a lot of time because of these peculiarities that uh, cancer Like, for example, if you inject those cells and get normalized, you inject only a few, because if you inject a truckload of them, there is no enough proportion of normal cells to cells that once belong to a cancer to push them to normalize. You have to have a ratio of normal cells to those cancer cells in order to make them now normalize. Hints on the uh, the ratios that make it tip over into uh, into cancer? Is there a yeah, threshold ratio? Well, it seems that uh, they have to make contact. You have to get like between uh, about 10 cells. I mean, in one of the experiments that was run by uh, Gil Smith at National Cancer Institute, it's a ratio of 10 to 1. And in some cases, cases it could work with 5 to 1, normal to cancer. So which I think indicate that the normal cells have to make junctions with those cancer cells and that when the, that happens, they form normal structures and they have normal. Does it seem like uh, normal cells, I guess, influence and uh, cause cancer cells to uh, to stay in line? I mean, what, like, yes. do you think cancer is a loss of control? Is it, and is that why the ratio is important? At some point, there's there's enough, yeah. I guess, dissidence that they take over. I said that uh, at the beginning that what happens is that the relationships between the different cell types get affected by the carcinogen so that now this communication is weakened. And when this communication is weakened, the cells that have the propensity, each one of them to proliferate very fast, are not inhibited anymore in forming these complex structures and they start proliferating and moving. So when you put them back into a normal situation, Normal cells inhibit them, not only inhibit them, but make them express normal proteins and behave normally. So not only inhibit cell proliferation, that is a, like I would say, gen, um, response that is not just cell proliferation, is the whole cell gets to behave like a normal cell because the normal cells induce it to be normal, not only not to proliferate, but to behave normally. So it's a, it's very interesting, but that is what you see when you put these uh, cells that were once a cancer into no- normal tissues. They don't proliferate like they did before when they were forming a cancer, but they will proliferate to regenerate the mammary gland. If now, say you take a few of those cells together with uh, tenfold more normal cells, they will repopulate the mammary gland and they won't produce cancer because that ratio will keep them behaving normally. Okay. Well, very good. Anna, what, what do you think is uh, possible from your research over the next couple of years? Is there anything you're, you're close to understanding, you believe? Well, yes, but uh, it's not only this. I think that, as I said, in order to understand better what goes wrong in cancer, you have to understand better what goes on in normal morphogenesis. And that is why we are looking at how normal tissues are formed. And so there is uh, where I'm concentrating my efforts in that and in developing appropriate theoretical tools to understand normalcy and cancer. Well, very good. Uh, Anna, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? Well, they can go to my site at Tufts University, where there are some papers posted. 
and they can just put my name in, a, say, any of the in Google, etc., and different things will appear that show our project. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.